Hi, and welcome to episode 127 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and a lot has happened since the last episode. Not only do we have a new government here in Australia, Anthony Albanese is our new Prime Minister, but the winners of the Archibald Wynne and Sulman Prizes were announced, and today I'm bringing you my interviews with each of those winners about those works. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll have heard me talk about these prizes often. They're awarded through the Art Gallery of New South Wales in Sydney and are amongst the most watched in the Australian art world, the Archibald being the most famous among them and probably the most controversial. But apart from getting a lot of media coverage on the day, the prizes also raise the profile of the artists involved. I was pretty excited that two podcast guests were among the winners this year. Black Douglas won the Archie with his portrait of artist Carla Dickens and Nicholas Harding won the Wynn Prize with his landscape painting Eora. And for the first time, a collaboration won the Sulman Prize. Claire Healy and Sean Cadero won for their innovative work Raiko and Shoot and Doji. You can see images of all those works on the website, talkingwithpainters.com and of course in real life, current hanging in the Art Gallery of New South Wales. I filmed Black Douglas a few weeks prior on the loading dock when he was entering his painting and I made that into a short YouTube video and I've included the audio in this episode. Unfortunately, on the day of the announcement, he had been whisked off to radio interviews before I could get to him for a chat. I also filmed my conversations with the other winners and they'll end up on the YouTube channel soon too, but the audio is in this episode. So I'll start off with my conversation with Black. You may have seen the winning painting. It's huge, three metres by two metres, and it's a portrait of Wiradjuri artist Carla Dickens standing almost knee-deep in muddy floodwaters, carrying two leaking buckets with 14 dark clouds in the grey sky overhead, referencing the recent devastating floods in Lismore where Carla lives. Although the clip is short and has a little bit of background noise, it gives you an idea of Black's thinking behind the painting. It was a great opportunity to paint a larger-than-life figure in the art world, larger-than-life, which is about another third size bigger than she ordinarily is. And there's so many metaphors in that painting, and um, I really would like to leave that for the public to, um, to kind of delve into but um i think that offers particularly a lot for kids in that painting so it's 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 rife with metaphors and um and analogies and and little cryptic messages yeah and of course carla is an artist as well yeah the fact that she lives in lismore thankfully above the water's surface but um still she's been helping out families up there and and um, I just, she actually requested to have this kind of pissed off face, you know, about, because uh, we speak weekly, um, have our little coffee chats in the mornings about this and that, art world, politics, whatever. And um, like I've often said to the kids, like the, the, one of the greatest feelings with art is to vent your frustrations on that canvas. And so not only, not only have I vented my frustration, but painting her in a particular um, way in a particular emotion is um, is basically killing two birds with one stone. Yeah, right. And I noticed you, the colours you used are quite uh, 
quite dark, like a limited palette, it seemed. Um, was that deliberate? It was. Um, part the obvious reason was that Lismore became biblical for, four, for 14 days and 14 nights, in a sense, a great flood. So, dark skies, dark clouds, there are 14 clouds representing those 14 days and 14 nights, so I wanted to have her represented as this, um, this kind of, uh, you know, biblical matriarch in the art world. Yeah, right. Oh, well, it's so powerful. Good luck with it. Thank like, you. I hope it gets in. Thank you. I spoke with Nicholas Harding on the day of the announcement. Nicholas is one of Australia's leading artists. He's won many of Australia's major prizes, including the Archibald Prize, the Archibald People's Choice Award, the Kilgour Prize and the Dobell Drawing Prize, and he's been painting the Australian landscape for many years. His painting in the Wynn is also huge. It's 196 centimetres by 374 centimetres and it portrays a scene of dense bushland. The title is Eora and Nicholas describes in his accompanying statement that it was the word used by Aboriginal people of Sydney to describe where they came from when asked by the British invaders what the place of first settlement was called. Here's my conversation with Nicholas. Nicholas, so great to see you here at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Congratulations on this fabulous work. Thank I'm you. just, I'm in awe of this work. It's just brilliant. I think it's a commission, isn't it? It is a commission, and um, you know, marvellous clients. They just came to me through the Olsen Gallery and said, "We love your work. We want something immersive, um, a Sydney landscape," and left me to it. And they didn't see it until it was finished. Do you do you find that you approach a work like that? in a different way than if you didn't have it, that it wasn't requested? Um, in the sense it was of Sydney, yes, because I haven't painted Sydney before, other than a long time ago, as you know, when I painted the urbanscapes. Uh, but all my landscapes have been recently in Wilpena Pound in South Australia, which is an entirely different light. But the thing this relates to is, is the paintings I've done of um, both the coastal landscapes up on the north coast of New South Wales, which has the pandanus, which has a very similar quality as, as, as a tree to the cabbage palms, you know, with that, those splintered, splinters of foliage and the way that they, they kind of crackle with light in a particular way. But of course the light's a little bit softer down here. And light is one of the many things that, that draws me to, to painting. So, um, and then you have the tree ferns, yeah. And they, they filter light in an um, entirely different way. I'm trying to think of the Japanese words I learned and have forgotten. So that's with K. Um, but it, it's, it, it's, it's a word they use. We don't have a word for it, which is uh, to do with the way the light comes through trees and creates a dappled quality. It's interesting you say that because when I look at your work, that idea of that dappled light coming through trees onto the ground in particular yes. is something that I love about it and I yes. think in a way it fragments the ground too. Yeah well fra fragmenting the ground is is something that that is so prevalent in the bush and one of the things that draws me to to the scrub and the nature of Australian flora and landscape is its untidiness and it's 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 a tangle that as a painter you have to work out how to communicate that without looking confusing because there is an order there and it's an entirely different thing to the thing I experienced until I was eight living in Britain where the, the, the landscape has been managed for centuries and 
So when we came here and lived up in northwestern Sydney suburbs in Normanhurst and on the edge of the bush, so spent a lot of childhood in the bush, immersed, um, doing things like playing combat and cowboys and Indians and things as a young child. But, you know, scampering across rock shelves and, and you know, there's a, there's a section here with a rock with the dappled light hitting it. And so all those things enter your, your mind and get stored away somewhere. And they recur just as natural elements when you're dealing with something specific as it was in this case. So those are, those are very important qualities in, in the sense of the, of the light. And so they're coming through ferns differently in a softer way. Uh, then they do travel through those, those shards of, of cabbage palm or pandanus foliage, um, which are very hard-edged, not soft and, and feathered like a fern. So they all, they all have a way of, of, of um, filtering the light. Mm. And I think one thing that people are going to see when they come here and come up close to your work, which is something that I've always said to people, mm, they mm. must come and see your work yeah, it's, it's in real life. Yeah, well, all painting should be experienced that way because yeah. it's, it's a material thing on a flat surface and has a, uh, you know, a, an object quality to it. Well, and yours more than, a, than others in a way. Yeah, but it's very impastoed. Exactly, exci- exactly. The, the matter of paint excites me. Well, and it's very, I think it's very exciting for the viewer as well. And the fact that it is broken down, when we look at it close up like this, which is such a privilege, um, each, each sort of section, in a way, if you break it down, has its own beauty. And I've said this before too, it has a real abstract quality when you come up close to it. Great, because that's a quality I, I want to bring into my painting in the sense that it's, it is an artificial thing, a painting, and you have to transform... There's a transformation that happens in the process of painting and drawing, because drawing's behind it all. It's the, it's the fundamental architecture of a painting. Um, How would the drawing... Does it start off as a drawing? No, I'm way too impatient. I just have to hit the <laughs> ground running. And um, I usually work with, a, with a, something this scale. I work with a, a, a photoshopped maquette. Um, I was always drawn to painters like, as a youth of... of um, James Rosenkitz uh, and, and Chuck Close, people of that, and they were working with the grid. Um, but when you break down a maquette into a grid, it, it turns also turns each element of that, that, that um, composition into an abstract. So, and that's where you start working with the transformation of the colour because there's a quality of the colour that you experience when you're actually in the landscape. Um, I have to actually have experienced the, the landscape. Um, and, and then the quality of the paint you're using, the hues, and then with that, that intermediary photographic thing, that's a different um, translation again. So there's this, this translation process that happens through that, that um, way of putting the thing together, that um, within that, you know, that small abstract um, frame of a grid that you have to um, simplify it and harmonise it and and a lot of that has a lot of forethought to it because you have to think about the nature of, for instance, a lot. Of, this is a very green landscape, 
but there are a lot of greys in it because there are a lot of grey elements to the Australian bush. And then the, the greys, you know, what, color, what kind of grey? So is it a mauve grey or a blue grey? And depending on the quality of the green you're working with, that has a, a different way of harmonising with a blue or a, a mauve or a magenta grey. So, you know, whether the grey is cold or warm, uh, whether the green is cold or warm. So there's all these things that, that, that come into it and there's a lot of forethought that you just think about as a painter before you even begin, but you're trying to see what you've experienced as a landscape through that artifice of painting and drawing. And, and talking about colour, um, have you got an extensive palette or do you have quite a limited? No, I have very, um, I have a, uh, over the years I've just narrowed it down to a, uh, a number of colours. Uh, most, and they're all different depending on the brand. So I've settled on one principal brand. And then there's a couple of auxiliary colours that are better in a different brand. And, and then whatever I'm painting, I, I work with those. And you can get, you know, colour mixing, you get so many different Well, that's right. I was, I was wondering about the greens, whether... Um, you must have a green on your palette. Do you have a green on your palette? Oh, I have, I have three. So oh, I've, okay. I've got... I should know four. So I've got chrome oxide, um, which is like a very um, bush green. And then you've got um, permanent sap green, which is a very black green. And then there's a sap green. Um, and then there's a very intense green, um, which is called something like green, Holland, old Holland green light. Oh, so, okay. That's interesting that you use a whole lot of different greens. Well, then, then you can mix them with the, so I use a dachshund violet. Yeah. But then if you mix that, you know, that in with the, the permanent sap green, you get this amazingly rich, almost black, but it's not black because it's got all those, those elements of colour in it. Um, so there are, there are many different types of black. I mean, I use a vine, principally a vine or an ivory black, but there are blacks you can mix that have uh, more depth because, you know, there's, there's just more going on. So, so I, ha I have those various colours laid out, but there's a way of putting them together that creates a variety and, a, and an immense range of possibilities. And, and then I'm, I'm, I have things I've experienced before and, and so know what they're going to do, but then there are ways of putting things together I haven't tried before to try and solve a new problem, which is important as well. Well, I suppose that's part of the challenge, always pushing yourself as Yeah, well. exactly, exactly. And there's always another thing to sort of drive your curiosity to, to give you a bit of a thrill. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, talking about a thrill, this isn't the first time you've been a finalist in the win. You've been a finalist nine times before. And, of course, yeah. you won the Archibald Prize yeah, in 2001. Yeah, and you've, yeah. you've been a finalist 19 times in the Archibald yes, Prize. Yes, indeed, yeah. So how does it feel? I mean... Somebody looking on might think, oh, you know, it's not a big deal. No, it's always it? a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, even to get hung, because I've, I've, I've been, uh, you know, refused, rejected. Yeah. And as well. And so, you know, that's, that's always a disappointment, even though in some instances that they've saved me from myself. And your judgment's <laughs> just been out that year, and you thought, well, well why did I bother putting that in? It was a, it was a stupid idea. But um, it's, no, I mean, to get this far, you know, I mean, you can see the quality of, you know, the, the, the range of different painterly language and the quality of the work, you know, people are putting forward. Yeah. That, you know, there's umpteen ways it can go, really. Yeah. So, 
and then that's, that's mangoes and pineapples and how do you compare how do you how do you judge your well that's it isn't you it know? so it's it's always surprising. Yeah. And, um, well, I'm not surprised that you're painting one this year. Oh, thank you very Nicholas, much. And um, congratulations again. Thanks, Maria. Thank you. The Salmon Prize this year was judged by artist Joan Ross and was awarded to Claire Healy and Sean Cadero for a vibrant work painted on the fuselage of a Vietnam War era helicopter. It depicts a fight between Japanese warrior Reiko and the demon Shuten Doju. Claire and Sean are based in the Blue Mountains and have been working together for over 20 years, regularly exhibiting in Australia and internationally, including solo shows at the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney. I started by asking Claire and Sean what it was like collaborating. I guess with, with for us, like there's a lot of conversation or there's ideas that um, we bounce or feed off um, each other. Often we don't like each other's ideas and we'll make sure that we write down the idea because maybe one day down the track that will get used or, you know, in time it percolates or the space that we're working within is something that feeds into ideas as well. Yeah. I think often I speak about the work in terms of the movie Inception. So basically, you know, we talk about things and then we put ideas into each other's heads and then that kind of grows within each other's head and then like the idea of individual authorship really kind of disappears and we, we take on the idea and then the idea grows into something. So I think um, it's interesting that art is usually seen as a very solo thing, but I mean, we live in you know, very complex societies where you, it's very odd for people just to work within little bubbles. So I feel like working together seems a, a very natural way of working. You know, yeah. people, couples bring up children, you know. I mean, so often, often artists hard. have a group of assistants who, make, you know, make an artwork come to life. You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't take just the solo artist with the paintbrush. I mean, it can require so many other factors to feed into the work. And can you tell me a bit about this work in particular? You were telling me earlier that you work on found objects. Because we're primarily sculptors, uh, we feel, you know, each object, each material has its own language. And um, really when we use found objects, we usually pick things that um, speak to us really and speak like to the concept that we're trying to talk about at the time. So. What you can see here, it's actually um, a piece of army surplus. It's a um, Vietnam War era helicopter fuselage. And uh, so we've, it's a kind of, I guess it's a kind of reverse evolution or like a reverse engineered. So we've gone from a flying machine, a modern machine of war back to um, a kite. So kite, the evolution of kites is really, um, of planes is really, People used to fly kites and then kites became planes and then planes became war planes. So we're going backwards. Oh, right. And, and is this based on a Japanese folk story, I think I read? Yeah, so. that's right. It, it's um, a, a scene that you might find depicted on a, like a traditional Japanese kite. And so this is um, Raiko, the warrior, who is having a fight with uh, the Oni um, Shuten Doji. And Raiko is wearing like a number of helmets and the, the Oni is actually already having been decapitated, takes a bite of the warrior's head, but he is confused and distracted because 
it's actually a, a helmet that he is biting onto. So we were interested in that as like a, a distraction. Yeah. And obviously it involves mixed media as well. Um, is that something that develops as the work progresses? Uh, it's pretty... Although it's mixed media, it's actually still not. So this um, rope here, you can see, this is actually a traditional way that kites are um, strung in Japan. So it's a um, particular form of kite that um, this is, yeah, this is basically the way that it's strung up. So usually like in Western kites, it's just like one string and two points, or else this has like about 13 points of contact. So it's kind of interesting in that it's... Um, it's kind of when a painting's not a painting in a sense where yeah. it is a painted surface, but then it is an object also. Yeah, but we've been really fortunate in being able to um, visit a, a few kite studios in Japan and going into these studios are incredible. You know, they're just like filled with so much um, kite art and like, you know, it's, it's chaos jam and jam-packed full of stuff. And it's really amazing. But I think for us, you know, like this whole body of work, there's like 20 works that are part of this series. So we've made like about 20 kites. And the thing is, like when we were making them, we had, you know, a, plan, a planned residency to go to Niigata in Japan, where they fly some of the world's largest um, kites. And we were going to have this residency. But of course, because of lockdown, we couldn't, couldn't get there. So this is a result of actually being grounded, being stuck in Australia and doing a lot of the research from Australia. And so we kind of see a kite as something that is almost like um, a drop pin, you know, like it places you in, in, a, in the here and now, whereas an aeroplane is something that will take you, you know, from here to elsewhere. So we just thought that was an interesting you know, way of dealing with the material. It's really interesting. And you're both in the based in the Blue Mountains, and you have a show coming up in Sydney. That's uh, right. In October, is so you basically collaborate in all your art, or? Yeah, I mean that wasn't the plan when we first set out, but it just has um, evolved that way, and we've been collaborating for yeah <laughs> a long time. So yeah, we've got a, a show coming up at Gallery N Smith, which is in Paddington on Napier Street, so we're very excited to have this show in October. Oh, fabulous. Well, good luck and congratulations again. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The Archibald Wynn and Sulman Prizes exhibition continues until the 28th of August 2022 and will travel to Victoria and regional New South Wales after that. I'll put links to the video versions of all these conversations in the show notes soon. You'll see the one for Black Douglas is there already. I've also included links to my previous podcast episodes with Black and Nicholas and the previous videos I've done with them as well. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, most of the Talking With Painters tribe seems to be on Instagram, but the show is also on Facebook and Twitter too. You can also subscribe for free to the YouTube channel and to the podcast. Thanks for all your comments and your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. I really love hearing from you. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking With Painters.